0: Sound the klaxon. This is not another navel-gazing analysis of Federal Reserve will-they-won't-they cut. No, dear listener, we reckon you're probably swamped with that already. Instead, it's Asia and emerging markets that are our focus this month. Are they overlooked by investors? As interest rates pivot and pirouette around the world, where can income seekers find harbour? Listen on as we discuss these and, oh, so many more things with a panel of Fidelity experts. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are Fixed Income Portfolio Manager Paul Greer, Senior Sovereign Analyst Andresa Tizzini, and dialing in from Singapore, Asia Economist Pei Chan Liu. Thank you all for joining me.
1: Hi there. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Pei-chan, a very happy Lunar New Year. I've got some burning questions for you in the Year of the Dragon. The National People's Congress in China convenes in March. How will that shape the year ahead?
2: Thank you and happy the Year of Dragon for everyone. Uh, absolutely, the, f- the most important event on calendar for China is the upcoming National People's Congress, the annual parliamentary session where all the key government officials sit together to set the target for the year ahead. It's very important for China as well as for the wider region within uh, the EM space as well. Simply because China has been a major manufacturing hub and with enormous consumption potentials to unleash as well. It all depends on where the growth targets is set. It looks like the case from the local government MPCs held in January that we're going to see a stable growth targets of around five percent this year.
0: Well, you mentioned there that China is the factory of the world, its consumers consume a lot of what the world makes as well. Will the decisions that the Congress makes, will they dictate what happens in the rest of Asia, or are markets there following their own paths?
2: Well, if China sets its growth at around 5%, in our view, it's a long-term trajectory of a somewhat slower growth compared to last decades. These slowdowns are twofolds. For one thing, I think China faces more structural headwinds in Uh, one of these most important drivers of growth, which is the property sector. Embedded under the 5% growth, I think property sectors probably continue to face some headwinds going ahead, and that will inevitably affect some of the commodity exporters to China. The other part of the story is, of, of course, the new growth engines that's been pumping growth into a stable manner, and that comes from the manufacturing sector upgrading. As China continues to upgrade on the global manufacturing supply chain, it will inevitably bring along some benefits to the regional economies
3: as well.
0: So benefits, Paul, um, does that give you confidence as you um, you think about investing in uh, in Asia?
3: I'm a bit more sceptical about the outlook for China, uh, particularly when I think about Chinese economic growth trajectory. I I think in my mind, it's pretty clear that over the last few years, um, you know, particularly during the COVID period, the Chinese authorities have clearly deprioritized growth uh, and focused a lot more towards things like financial stability um, and tackling the debt burden, etc., um, and, of course, at the same time, you know, Chinese demographics are particularly weak. You know, the population in China at the minute is about 1.4 billion. By the end of the century, it's estimated to be, you know, around about five or 600 million. So that's uh, a big headwind for longer term Chinese potential growth. But then, of course, when you think about China relative to where it has been in previous cycles what's you know quite clear in my mind is that this time round the chinese authorities in beijing have been either unwilling or unable to deliver policy stimulus both on the monetary and on the fiscal side i mean we do see some positive headlines from time to time but uh, from my perspective the order of magnitude of the stimulus that's being delivered Um, has been has been quite underwhelming. So, you know, when it comes to Chinese growth sensitive assets, um, I am cautious. uh, And I frankly, within a a global EMD standpoint, I think there are better opportunities elsewhere.
0: Moving away from China, then um, what about in uh, in Asia?
3: Uh, Within Asia, I mean, there are some countries that we like, of course, everywhere in Asia, it's difficult to escape the gravity of Chinese economic growth trajectory. But within Asia, you know, we're quite optimistic on Indonesia. You know, that's a country going in the right direction. But I, I think the longer term outlook for a country like Indonesia is is, is quite positive.
0: And we've talked before about the demographics. It's, it's a very different picture there, of course.
3: Exactly. Um. But overall, when I think about Asia compared to other regions within emerging markets, it doesn't stack up. Particularly favorably, either from a growth standpoint or where Asia is in the policy and inflation cycle, the kind of uh, interest rates and real yields that are on offer in the region um, are are far uh, are are particularly um, poor compared to other parts of the world.
0: Okay, well, we'll we'll be talking about other parts of the world as we as we go through this recording. Um, Andressa, let me let me come to you because being a central banker is not an easy job at the best of times. Have emerging market central bankers improved their their standing, improved their reputation? Do you think
1: emerging market countries were the first ones actually to start hiking interest rates? You can see Brazil was the first one, one of the first ones to start hiking. Latin America in general hiked prior to the Fed, so you can see that the history the history of a hyperinflation has taught a lot to these countries how to deal with inflation and to attack inflation very quickly and very early in a very uh, fast way, which I think it always gives credibility when you tackle inflation at early stage. Um, So this, I think, was very positive, was the first cycle. So they did did very well by the end of 2020, 2021, 2022, and um, and now we're in the opposite cycle. So now we're actually... Uh, checking these countries that have hiked a lot, have boost credibility and where they are in the cycle now. I think the main focus for us on the central bank side is um, which are the central banks that can start cutting interest rates and at which pace. Obviously the ones that have more credibility will probably bring inflation down faster and therefore will potentially uh, uh, bring actually the the rates uh, down faster as well. But uh, some other central banks, they have actually lengthening the monetary policy horizon. So instead of reaching inflation by the end of 2024, for example, now they are uh, targeting eighteen months.
0: So essentially they're moving the goalposts.
1: Exactly. So without changing the target. So um depends how the market interprets that. So if you have a history of credibility, you kind of accept, okay, it's not twelve months, it's eighteen months. But if the central banks don't have credibility, so moving this signpost as you were saying, but not exactly changing the target is negative. So this is a weakening.
3: When I think about the experience over the last three, four years, you know, through the COVID cycle, I think for the most part, EM central banks have been very, very disciplined in terms of getting on top of inflation and inflation expectations. And as Andresa alluded to, they were very early in terms of tightening monetary policy to get on top of rising price pressures way ahead of developed market um, peers on the central bank side. Uh, And one thing we've observed over the last three, four years since COVID has been that EM central banks and EM policy decisions are kind of like in a, in a time machine. They're about consistently six to nine months ahead of developed markets in terms of when inflation first started coming up, uh, when central banks started to hike rates, when inflation peaked, uh, when it started to come down, and you know it's it's no surprise that about nine months ago kind of last summer, EM central banks started to cut interest rates, as Andresa mentioned, uh, and I think that's um, something of a harbinger for the behaviour you're going to see from DM central banks uh, as we come into the spring and the summer of this year.
0: So an impressively consistent leading indicator. But, but why? Why were they hit first? And then why have they been so much better at, at um, tackling it sooner?
1: I think timing is an issue. Definitely, as Paul alluded to as well, is definitely timing. I think the faster they can identify that inflation was not all a supply shock, but could have a secondary impact and therefore they would have to do more than just actually affect than just react to the supply shocks i think um latin american central banks were the first ones to realize that this the shock we had with the covid was uh, was not only a temporary shock it was going to be a much longer period and therefore they would have to anchor inflation expectations so for the central banks that follow inflation target regimes they do need to anchor inflation expectations and that's very important and one last thing that i can add sorry just to add to what paul mentioned as well is um the level of uh, neutral rates for the central banks for because before before covid or in the past when you had uh, basically financial repression neutral rates or real neutral rates were very low. In some countries were even zero. And uh, But what you're saying now, and there's a lot of discussions, is that has the neutral rate gone higher? And I think that's a question for the Fed, but it's also a question for emerging market markets. So I think the major point that now the markets are trying to realize, and us as analysts as well, is we need to identify what is the pace that the central banks are going to start cutting, but also what is the terminal rate, because the terminal rate is not going to go back to previous cycles. We're probably going to have a much higher uh, level of a real neutral rate because of this credibility issue that I was talking about.
3: And, of course, EM countries and EM central banks, they don't have the luxury of being able to print hard currency. Uh, So they're very hostage to... Uh, capital flows. And if they don't get on top of inflation pressures quickly, you know, they'll pay for that dearly through currency weakness. So perhaps they were uh, more battled hardened uh, when it comes to tackling inflation, certainly compared to their developed market peers.
0: I'm going to come to Pei Chan in a moment, but just one last question for for both of you, which is we're talking a lot about Latin America. We've got some um, data that's um, hot off the press. It's the February Fidelity Analyst Survey, so a survey of all of the equity, fixed income, private assets um, analysts at at Fidelity, Um, and they're... Uh, sense check on what's going on in the world. And that shows that management sentiment is returning everywhere but China and leading the pack ahead by far are EMEA and Latin America. So management confidence is up. Um, Is that feeding through in the sovereign space, Andressa? Is it feeding through to investor confidence, Uh, Paul? Andressa, first of all.
1: On growth, for example, I would say um, a lot of uh, um, countries in Latin America specifically are going to see actually Better growth this year than last year, obviously, because was the peak of interest rates, and um, and this year, why you are seeing recovery, mainly because obviously we're expecting interest rates to go down. uh, Central banks are cutting rates. um, Also, we're expecting that with inflation coming down and interest rates coming down, but uh, there is a a moment that uh, people feel richer because inflation is coming down. So your disposable income. Is higher, so the propensity to consume is higher. So therefore, they're gonna spend a little bit more. This helps growth. And finally, fiscal side, which is I would say negative for for investors and long long part of the curves. But uh, the governments, especially in Latam, I would say, and mostly CE as well, they're spending a lot. So that's the bad side of it in terms of the balance sheet of the governments. But in terms of growth, it's it's very positive.
3: Yeah, I I definitely agree with the concerns on 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 fiscal as a longer term. Um, headwind for the market and particularly the long ends of curves as andresa has alluded to but i think um kind of a little bit more short to medium term the markets have definitely rewarded regions like latin america over the last 12 months because of that disciplined approach to monetary policy that we experienced, you know, 2022 and 2023, you just have to look at the currency performance, which is, you know, the best gauge of investor sentiment uh, in EM countries. And last year was a great example where we saw, you know, U.S. interest rates go up sharply. uh, And in that kind of environment, you know, typically or normally we would have seen, you know, capital flight out of many parts of emerging markets, but actually a lot of currencies, Latin American currencies in particular, actually did really well. So, you know, they were rewarded by that disciplined approach to monetary policy, those elevated real yields that really helped uh, protect FX performance, uh, especially in Latin America.
0: Okay. And turning to Asia, we've got Pei Chan in, uh, in Singapore. Um, I just mentioned that in that analyst survey, the management confidence um, is up everywhere in the world apart from China. Um, so, you know, that, that's not a surprise. We know that things are difficult there at the moment. But what about the rest of, of Asia and the path that you think that um, the region is going to, to take there? It's a fairly mixed outlook for growth, but, but growth all the same.
2: Well, I think in, in Asia, well, the bright spots definitely is the big theme that uh, manufacturing supply chain are reconfiguring. Countries like Indonesia, we, where we highlighted, is uh, ambitiously trying to establish an EV manufacturing hub. So in the short term, or even cyclically, that means more capex investments coming through. And also that comes together with uh, Indonesia's potential headrooms for red cuts to spur domestic demand fiscal uh, policy are going to remain accommodative in the short term. It's one of our favorite pick in the region. India, on a different impulse, which is less correlated with China's growth, is perhaps also going to enjoy uh, some of its cyclical upturns. And it, it in absence of the influence from China, that's probably also one of the bright spots we're looking out for. And just lastly, not particularly EM, but Japan is also experiencing a reflationary uh, impulse, which in Asia can be a bright spot that we're looking out for.
0: Yes, we've discussed Japan a few times actually, a real shining star um, as uh, at the, the end of last year and coming into um, coming into this again. Um, and just uh, the the fiscal picture that we've we've heard about there, and um, you know it may be changing, but but perhaps not <laughs> dramatically after the uh, the Congress. Um, how how is that changing the capital flows between um, emerging markets?
1: the the capital flows usually it's uh, for example in 2018 when china actually helped again uh, the economy and uh, we had a boost actually of investments again from the government was probably the last time that we saw actually this but um we saw this benefit in a lot of emerging markets so whenever you see china helping or hopefully helping the markets there is a a boost of capital And this actually impacts the emerging markets as a risk asset. So you do have more investors looking for risk assets in this scenario. So definitely a positive uh, Congress uh, meeting, uh, giving some boost in the economy, some fiscal boost to the economy, would benefit emerging markets as a risk asset, I would say. In terms of capital flows, we... Or trade flows, capital flows would be probably via uh, investments coming to emerging markets, but trade flows is something that has been going down for the last 10 years. And this has been uh, more difficult to predict because it all depends, actually, it's very hinged as well on the US elections, I would say, in November. So a lot of things could change after that. But um, but trade flows have been actually going down everywhere. And uh, I, don't, I don't think this is going to change because of the Congress in China.
0: Okay, well... Um, Pei-Chan, you mentioned um, inflation and one cause for concern for people watching inflation could be the recent attacks on container ships in the Red Sea, which are disrupting one of the world's most important trade routes between Asia and Europe. And earlier I spoke to Fidelity's macroeconomist uh, based here in London, Anna Stibnitska, about the impact those attacks are having.
4: We are seeing uh, some increases in supply delivery times, as uh, evidenced by the February PMIs. Um, The uh, countries that are most affected by that are those in Asia and Europe, because this is obviously the main route between Asia and Europe. We have seen a little bit of uh, an increase in input costs as well. But so far, Uh, we don't see much evidence that uh, this increase in input costs and uh, the delays in shipping uh, are feeding into final consumer prices. We think it will take some time. Various estimates suggest that on average, it might add somewhere between 20 and 40 basis points to headline inflation. And around 10 to 15 basis points to core inflation on average globally, but Europe is the most exposed to that. But when we look at uh, different studies and different historical examples, uh, it does take a few months, up to 12 months for, for this impact on inflation to accumulate
0: um, you've given us a global estimate. What do you reckon it might be for European countries um who are importing, as you say, a lot of goods from uh, from from Asia and exporting as well through through that route?
4: We think it's going to be at at the upper um, range of this um Um, this estimate, so around 40 basis points. But uncertainty is very high. Of course, um, it depends on what the actual pass-through is going to be. Is it going to be 100% of the shipping cost increase that we've seen that's feeding into inflation is going to be 50%? Um, It's unclear at this point in time. But as we uh, look at this uh, in terms of what the central banks are trying to do this year, We don't think that these disruptions at this point in time are going to have a significant impact on the path of central bank rates and they are unlikely to change at least the starting point for the easing cycle in 2024.
0: That's interesting. So they've they've kind of put it in perspective in their um, calculations. Is it also mitigated, I wonder, by the changes in supply chains that companies everywhere have had to introduce since COVID, that they've had to shorten supply chains, there's been a lot of reshoring. So um, is this perhaps not having the impact it might have had? Uh, before the pandemic.
4: Absolutely, you're right. Um, uh, we see that the global trade has learned some lessons from logistics disruptions during the pandemic, including um, how to improve resiliency, um, to accommodate uh, longer lead times for production, and also maintaining higher inventory levels than before. Um, so the disruption itself uh, is is much smaller than uh, the scale that we saw during COVID. And uh, as you say, adding these lessons learned, um, uh, the impact on global pricing is likely to be relatively marginal.
0: So you sound pretty sanguine about the, uh, the whole affair.
4: I think there are upside risks if disruptions last for longer. Um, And uh, also, if uh, the the shipping costs uh, uh, keep rising from here. So of course, it's all about the magnitude, the pace, and the length uh, of this disruption. The longer... Uh, it lasts, uh, the higher the impact is going to be on prices. So if it lasts for the whole year, then it's going to be a, a much more significant problem for inflation in twenty-five.
0: Okay, so obviously one to keep an eye on as the year develops. And of course, there may be other surprises. But there's one other area I want to ask you about, uh, Anna, which is China. And um, obviously, uh, an economy that is in a very, very different stage of the cycle to um, Europe and, uh, and, of course, the States in particular. Um, but what about the deflationary impulses that are coming from, from there?
4: Actually, the uh, deflation impulse from China is uh, the most important tailwind for global disinflation right now. So any worries that we might have uh, about upside risks uh, from the Red Sea disruptions, uh, for the time being, are more than upset Uh, by that deflation coming out of China. And those countries that are most exposed to um, imports from China are benefiting from, from this deflation. And these are smaller economies in Asia, uh, but also some European countries are benefiting. So when we're talking about uh, the upside risk from the Red sea disruption versus uh, deflation in China, for the time being, um, we are seeing uh, the latter, helping bring uh, the global inflation down, but maybe further down the line, as I said, as the effects of the red sea disruptions accumulate, um, that might be more the subside risk.
0: our macroeconomist, Anna Stibnitska emphasising the deflation point, which is such an interesting and important one to, uh, to note. Now, picking up Anna's point about shortening supply chains, so this trend towards reshoring and nearshoring, which is deglobalizing production, and, of course, perhaps boosting regional economies as well. And an interesting statistic here, last year the US imported more from Mexico than from China for the first time in two decades. So, um chun what impact is that having on the Chinese economy? It can't be particularly good, I, I expect.
2: This is a very interesting question, uh, Richard. I think that's going to be a mixed impact because at the same time, another statistics is showing that China's exports share to Mexico has also been increasing in the past few years. Ah. So what happened essentially from China reshoring theme to me is that people are moving the production hubs closer to final demand. But ultimately, the supplier will still be China because simply because the nature of supply chain being fairly sticky.
0: Fascinating.
2: To me, it's more of a story of a supply chain reconfiguration at this stage. In the longer run, I think that that presents huge opportunities for these uh, manufacturing hubs that are closer to the final demand. But I, I would envision a case where Chinese corporates get deeply involved in that supply chain reconfiguration as well.
0: Ah, they're not going to pass that by. Um, and, uh, Andressa, thinking about Mexico, this is a significant boost, of course, for, for economies like, 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 like that. Like Mexico, yeah. yeah. And
1: then as you can see, the numbers... Numbers never lie, as we say. (laughs) So you can see already investments growing and picking up in Mexico. And the latest numbers, for example, we, we have, and we have this theme, the buzzword is nearshoring, or reassuring everything that is shoring at the end um, has to do with this view that uh, companies are coming to Mexico because they're closer to U.S. Um, this geopolitical issue is is very important for investors and corporates in general. And this you can see in the numbers, as I was saying. So you can see, for example, private investments have grown 20% in the north of Mexico, so closer, obviously, to U.S. And this has boosted growth a lot for Mexico last year. But on the other hand, you do have the south of Mexico, the southern part that is mainly public investments, which grew 90%. 90, 90, 90. So, this tells you that, yes, nearshoring is happening, is helping growth, but it's mainly on the north part of the country. But the south part of the country, you have the public investment, that's the fiscal part that I was talking before, that is growing and is pushing the economy. And this has to do with the major projects that AMLO has promised. One is the refinery, the Bocas refinery, and also the Tren Maya. So, this is definitely on the part, the peninsula, the Yucatan peninsula so those two projects for example uh, may have counted for a, a lot of the public investments to, to mexico but it is interesting to notice though that the latest if you want really the latest latest figures you can see that actually manufacturing production has dropped actually four percent in december surprisingly
0: why is why is that and
1: uh, i uh, inve- industrial production also um just grew zero versus 1.2 a lot of things are, that's what is the problem with the private investments um a lot of things has to do with this uh, reforms that AMBLO is trying to propose that is going to weaken rules of law at the end of the day. So short term is a very good nearshoring and a lot of investments coming through to Mexico. But if you don't have uh, an umbrella of laws and regulations that uh, give confidence to, to investors in the private sector, it's quite difficult to see this re- being replicated uh, to the future or re- replicated in the long term. So that's why you need to have not only investors and investment companies coming to Mexico, but you, they need to see more restraining of the rules of law in Mexico.
0: Let's ask an investor directly. Paul, yes. <laughs> um, th- this is one of the common uh, themes when you're investing in emerging markets. It's exciting. There is um, a lot of movement. It's very, very dynamic. But, you know, uh, political management can sometimes get in the way. So how do you balance that with a country like um, Mexico? Um, A big flow of cash coming in and yet the fiscal discipline is perhaps not there.
3: When I think about Mexico, you know, clearly it's a big winner in this kind of post-COVID nearshoring and localization of supply chains. And, you know, I think about a country like Mexico, it's absolutely blessed with its geography, you know, next door neighbour to the bigger consumer, the biggest consumer market on the planet. It's obviously had strong trade linkage with the U.S. Uh, you know, for for many many years. And you know, the, the one anecdote um, that I always think about is, you know, if you're if you want to transport uh, a truck from you know Monterey, which is one of the big manufacturing hubs in the north of Mexico, if you want to move a truck from there to Chicago, it takes. Somewhere between 36 and 48 hours. If you were to do the equivalent, you know, move a container from one of the big manufacturing hubs in eastern China to Chicago, it takes about 25 days. So there's a very obvious logistical advantage uh, for Mexico. And of course, Mexico, it also has the best manufacturing uh, factories and assembly lines. In the world, uh, in the north of the country, the the maquiladoras, which really is a legacy of the NAFTA agreement um, back from the the, the mid nineties, uh, and another important angle here, which shouldn't be dismissed, is the labor uh, manufacturing labor costs in dollar terms are now much cheaper in Mexico compared to somewhere like China, and that's completely different versus 25 years ago, just before, you know, China um, uh, joined the the, the WTO. Um, you know, fiscal is a concern. You know, we're obviously going into an election cycle uh, in June in Mexico as well this year. But I think the starting point in terms of debt metrics in Mexico are pretty strong compared to peers, you know, public sector debt. Is around about fifty percent of of GDP. So of course that's rising, but uh, it's it's a pretty healthy starting point in Mexico.
0: And and Payton, I want to come back to this um, this point of a sort of, you you called it reconfiguring the supply chain, and it really does sound quite significant that um, you've got labour costs cheaper in in Mexico, as Paul was um, describing. Um, But that doesn't mean that China's losing out necessarily. It's simply taking a different position in the overall supply chain or value chain um, of manufacturing, which perhaps is how the authorities want to reshape the economy.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think two things happened over the past few years that drives the current change or reconfiguration, I would say. The first one, domestically, I think China's labor force makeup has experienced a very significant change over the past decade from lower value add, a lower educated labor force that mainly consists of migrant workers who are focused much more on the low value add manufacturing construction sectors towards what I call a more of a talent dividend that China is experiencing right now, because China is currently producing on an annual basis more than 10 million university graduates. These labor force are going to demand higher wages, better jobs, which force China to upgrade itself in terms of manufacturing supply chain. So that inevitably means some of those lower value add uh, manufacturing jobs and uh, industries are going to shift out of China. Externally, we are also facing more. Geopolitical headwinds as more countries realize the needs for de risking from China, especially after the pandemic disruptions. So, that has also forced somewhat a proactive approach from Chinese corporates to deeply involved in going overseas. And seek for China plus one opportunities.
0: Mm, A very, very different picture, isn't it? That um, is is beginning to emerge. You've all painted um, quite a different um, picture, um, or an evolving picture of um, how these economies are adapting and um, realizing they've got to reposition themselves. Does that mean that investing in emerging markets has got is now winning a different? Um, perception from investors um, compared with the past is it is it less risky is it more exciting Um, or is it the you know how how would you characterize it now compared with maybe five years ago
3: i think you know em is increasingly synchronized with the DM world in terms of, you know, economic and, and trade linkages. Um, but of course, there's there's always a spectrum. Um, uh, I would say the bigger countries in emerging markets who've been around longer as investment destinations who have, you know, credible central banks, floating FX regimes, inflation targeting uh, mandates, uh, you know, the, the markets are now, you know, getting more and more comfortable with those countries compared to, say, some of the newer, lower-rated investment destinations um, that have become uh, opportunities in recent years?
1: I would say, actually, um, if you really think that um, previous cycles that we saw, the Fed hiking interest rates, this one was the most disruptive in terms of creating more and more distressed credits in emerging markets. Mainly because we are coming from negative interest rates or so very low interest rates, and suddenly you have the Fed actually um, hiking interest rates in, in in a longer period, but it's still hiking interest rates. Which, as a result, we had distress, distress credits. Um, but but now we're coming out of this phase. Potentially, you are all waiting for this Fed pivoting <laughs> exactly to see the countries that are going to survive from from that as- aspect. And premium is much higher. So I think if when you ask if it's still more interesting, emerging market is always interesting. We always say there's never dull day in emerging markets. But the most important thing for investors is um the premium that they get. So why would they invest in the emerging market as usual is diversification. It is valuation and is the potential for good stories
3: when we think about what has happened over the last couple of years with the very high increase in u s. interest rates, em has been tested, I would say, like never before, in terms of the speed and the severity of monetary policy tightening globally. And EM is still standing. Uh, You know, lessons have been learned from previous episodes. It still offers an attractive uh, investment opportunity for for, uh, global investors. So... um, The opportunities are still there. EM has been tested hard over the last couple of years, uh, but we still like the asset class. The asset class is still standing, uh, and we're quite optimistic about returns for the coming year.
0: And, and Pei Chan, I don't know if you want to add anything from an Asia point of view.
3: Sure. I mean, from
2: an Asia standpoint, I think uh, the most significant change is China is becoming less forceful of a cyclical driver to Asia's growth. It's no longer the phase where China delivers big-band fiscal stimulus to drive up growth, but China is allowing this long-term shift towards higher quality growth. And the implication of that is just Asian economies are facing more diversifications and idiosyncratic growth patterns. And somewhat Uh, closer to what DM uh, economic cycle looks like.
0: Right, that's almost it. But before we go, we have time to squeeze in the rich picking game of hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? I'm going to come to Andressa first.
1: My hot potato would be, given that we are all worried about China in terms of uh, growth and uh, what is the um, the linkage with other countries. I would be worried with countries that are dependent on China for exports, for example. And this would be, for example, Chile and uh, Chile exports commodities, exports copper, uh, has been through a phase of low growth, and this I think is going to continue, which affects the FX. So I'm I'm more bearish there on FX Chile, and also obviously monetary policy as well because they're cutting interest rates. So that's my hot potato. Your hot cake. My hot cake would be then why not think about rates in CE because uh, we are expecting, obviously, the Eurozone to have a deceleration of the economy faster than the US, as you're seeing already. So you probably would expect Europe to start cutting uh, earlier than the Fed. And uh, this will prompt uh, more cuts in the CE region. A lot of in, but maybe it's the pace that is going to surprise us, I think, on the positive side. So that's my hot cake.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much. I'll come to Chan next.
1: Sure, that's a very tough one.
2: I'll start with the positives, hotcakes. Well, I think while China's growth might be a structural concern for many, but there are opportunities that presents with China's reconfiguration of supply chain, where we mentioned quite a couple of times. So those notes economies that are closer to final demands present lucrative opportunities for renewed investments. Candidates like Vietnam or Mexico, are the good ones. In Asia, we look at uh, Indonesia as uh, one of our hot picks as well. Back to the hot potatoes, uh, that also boils down China to China's divergent growth pattern because of the property-driven slowdown. Investors may want to avoid uh, exporters that are exporting commodity-intensive products related to the property supply chain.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we haven't heard the last of that, have we? Paul, last but not least, let's come to you. What are your hot cakes, please?
3: yeah my my hot kicks would be Latin American local currency government bonds so countries like Brazil Mexico Peru Colombia Uruguay etc very high real yields on offer uh, very high central bank credibility, falling inflation, stable currency regimes and geopolitical neutrality what's not what's not to like about that and on the hot potato side it would be assets which are sensitive to Chinese and European growth. So when I think about FX, you know, I'm using things like the euro and the Chinese renminbi as uh, funding opportunities for investing in other currencies in other regions.
0: Well, we started with your views on China, Paul, and we've ended with them as well. But thank you very much indeed for joining us, as well as Andresa and Pei Chan and also Anna Stubnitska. And thank you to you for listening. You can read more analysis from Pei Chan on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. And you can hear a lot more about China and the region in our sister podcast, The Investor's Guide to China. I do recommend it. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producers today were Holly Eastman, Seb Morton-Clark and Toby Sims with technical support from Canon Blitz Kim Jo Co and Alex Wilcox but for now from all of us at Fidelity goodbye
3: This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.